I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. There are, of course, those who do not want us to speak. Greed, deception, abuse of power, that's no plan. They, they just gatekeep knowledge, you know? They're, they're to total masters of deception. They manipulate everything. You know, these, these pricks at the hell that lie to us. It's... I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. These allegations are false, and I need to go back to work for the American people. They're, they're setting it up for the Great Deception. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it all revolves around the Great Deception. Yeah, right? it, bingo. And L.A. and I talked about that. I said, L.A., is this the Great Deception? And he didn't hesitate. He said, absolutely. I never used to question before, and now I question everything. Well, we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. The world needs a wake-up call. We're going to fall it in. And welcome to another episode of the Great Deception Podcast. I'm your host, Matt. Thanks for joining me. Tonight, I'm going to go over part two of Jim Mars's The Rise of the Fourth Reich. A really interesting book. Um, full of a lot of good information, some stuff I see as suspect, but overall a very entertaining read. And it gives you some ideas to think about as to where we are today and how we got here. Okay, so in the first part, you remember, we went over some basic stuff, uh, you know, the origin of the Reich, how it began, uh, we talked about some of the wonder weapons and things like that and how, you know, they started to see that Hitler was basically being used as a, a pawn and once he served his purpose, he was replaced or, you know, gotten rid of. And so the question is, with all the Nazis that left, because we all know that there were thousands of Nazis that went on to, you know, work in America for the government. There were thousands of Nazis that went to Russia. There were thousands of Nazis that went to South America. And so how did, how did this happen? Well, there was multiple things. We, we've talked about Project Paperclip before. Tonight, we're going to talk about the rat lines and, you know, how the Vatican played a role in that. And the Galen organization, what was that? What's its relation to the CIA? And so again, we're going to look at Paperclip because obviously that's part of the after effects of World War II. And that was where we brought in thousands of, you know, it's not just scientists. There were thousands of just Nazis from all across different areas, um, not just science. 
you know there was there was doctors there was engineers there you know anybody that could serve a purpose for america was brought over here whether you know regardless of their past which is mind-blowing and it just goes to show how ruthless and how at any cost or by any means the u.s government or the shadow government that some say is in charge of the u.s government will go then we're going to get into the space race which i find mars's take on this really interesting um i i like the idea here and he throws out something that i find really interesting about maybe this was a collaboration between the united states and the russians and not a race except in the media wouldn't be the first time or last time something like that's happened we're going to look at the nazi mind control one of the big ones right we know about mk ultra and artichoke and monarch and all these different programs we're going to get some eugenics and he does spend a lot of time talking about fluoride in this i'm not really sure why you know i get we the, the point is driven home as to why but i mean yeah he, he just goes over and over and over again on fluoride so we'll hit that up too and then we're going to get into two really interesting topics which is the military industrial complex and groups like the cfr the council of foreign relations and uh how maybe the cia created or the nazis created the muslim brotherhood together interesting and then we're going to look at how the banks go round and round and in a very interesting story about looking at the banking system and, and in essence guys that's what really controls all this follow the money and we're going to end up with a little jfk and the nazis and um some jfk conspiracy uh and assassination so buckle up uh again if you want to support the show uh you can join patreon uh, i have three different tiers out there uh any contribution is greatly appreciated uh there is a venmo in the link if you want to make a donation that way another donation that you can make is sharing the show uh with others growing the audience will always help and is greatly appreciated uh you can go check it out right leave a review uh, do what we got to do here to help this show reach the algorithms and, and get out there to people because we're bringing stuff that needs to be brought to people's attention there's a lot of people that don't know this and i didn't know a lot of this and i thought i knew a lot about the whole post-world war ii setup and boy was i wrong so here we go we're gonna look at the rat lines and it's interesting here because we see the ties with the vatican okay and and we know that even before the end of the war that you know the ss and the hardcore nazis were going throughout the world through different covert distribution systems you know it was different escape routes they had some through europe which were called the rat lines um odessa was one was created by uh, martin borman and mueller um but it was administered by Scorz Otto Scorzani, who is 
a crazy man. He's like Indiana Jones, this guy. So if anybody wants to read about an interesting guy in history, one of the characters is Otto Skorzeny. This guy is so interesting. Um, he, he could because he escaped war crime convictions, and um, he was the main terminal point for Odessa, and to get people to Buenos Aires, which was the end target. Then you have Joseph Mengele, right, the angel of extermination at Auschwitz, um, and. Then you have Gestapo chief, uh, who is it? Heinrich Mueller, right? That's Bormann's right-hand man too. So uh, according to a bunch of reports, uh, Mengele suffered a stroke while swimming and drowned in Brazil in 1979, which is some 34, 35 years after the war. Um, So that's where he was hiding, in Argentina, Paraguay, Brazil. Latin America is where we're going to see. South America. We're going to see a lot of these guys escape to. Eichmann, right? He was supposed to, he escaped to Argentina and got abducted by uh, Israel or Mossad in 1960. And he was convicted of war crimes and executed. So it's an interesting relationship between Hitler and the Roman Catholic Church. You got to go back, though, uh, Mars says, to 1929 agreement signed between the Vatican and the government of fascist Italy. So he says, under this agreement, known as the Lateran Treaty, the Italian government bought favor of the church by paying almost a billion lire in gold as compensation for church property taken during the 19th century uh, reorganization that helped create modern Italy. The Lateran Treaty also established the Vatican City in Rome as a sovereign state much like Washington, D.C., right, and the city of London, as well as making Roman Catholicism the only state religion in Italy. On July 20th, 1933, a similar agreement was reached between Pope Pius XI and Nazi Germany. Treaty negotiations were handled by, um, by a cardinal who signed on behalf of the Pope and later became Pope Pius XII. According to a 1933 agreement between you know, the Vatican and the Nazis, there was to be no interference by the church in political affairs. It also required all bishops to take a loyalty oath to the state and required all priests to be German citizens and subordinate to government officials. So prior to the agreement's uh, ratification, the Nazi government also reached similar agreements with major Protestant churches. Okay, so they're trying to get good with the church. So in 1937, Pope Pius XI issued um, a letter entitled, With Burning Sorrow. The Pope accused the Nazis of both violating and evading the agreement and foresaw threatening storm clouds of war and extermination. They weren't wrong. A year later, Pius XI addressed the Nazi persecution of the Jews by proclaiming worldwide, mark well, that in the Catholic Mass, Abraham is our patriarch and forefather. Anti-Semitism is incompatible with lofty thought which that fact expresses. I say to you, it is impossible for a Christian to take part in anti-Semitism. It is inadmissible. Through Christ and in Christ, we are a spiritual progeny of Abraham. Spiritually, we are all Semites. And then in 1939, the day before he was scheduled to deliver uh, yet another attack on fascism and anti-Semitism, he died of a massive heart attack. Very interesting, because we know at this time that they had weapons where they could 
or, you know, concoctions that they could give you to make you seem like you died of a heart attack. Many quote-unquote false identity papers were documents issued by Vatican Refugee Organization. While not full passports, these Vatican identity papers were used to obtain displaced person passport from the International Red Cross, which would then be used to gain a visa. Okay, so here we go. We're starting to see the Red Cross is always involved in this. The Vatican. These are supposed to be like helping humanity. Instead, they're funneling Nazis around the world. And where are they funneling them to? A lot of them are going to Argentina. Why Argentina? Well, let's look. There it has been able to operate without any disguise or front. All of the more than 200,000 Argentine Nazis are members, not of an Argentine suborganization of the Nazi party, but of the German party itself, and hold membership cards signed by Robert Lee, the former leader of the, uh, the leader of the German Workers' Party front, which means quite obviously that Berlin uh, considers Argentina not so much an independent foreign country as a German district. Interesting. Now let's get into Juan Perón, right? I, I, I'm not sure. Some of you that are my age would probably remember the movie Evita was big with Madonna back in the 90s. And this was the story of Juan Perón and Evita. And we're going to get into that right now. Juan Perón was an Argentine dictator. Um, not many people realized at the time that he was just stashing away an estimated 500 million in Swiss bank accounts of which it is said at least 100 million came from the Borman organization. Perón reciprocated for uh, this generosity by allowing many war criminals to immigrate legally and illegally to Argentina. He reportedly provided more than a thousand blank passports for escaping Nazis. Okay, then it was his wife, Evita. Um, Avita took on her role as a liaison between her husband and the Nazis seeking asylum. It's in, her story is interesting. She was born in 1919. She was an illegitimate child. Um, she became a prostitute to survive and uh, then got acting roles. And as she climbed the social ladder, they said lover by lover, she built up deep resentments towards the traditional elites. And so she said as the mistress of... Uh, to the other army officers, she caught the eye of Juan Perón. And after a public love affair, they married in 1945. Well, in 1947, Perón embarked on a much-publicized rainbow tour of Europe, greeted by Spain's Franco and an audience with Pope Pius XII. So she was in Spain. She met with, reportedly, with Otto Skorzeny. Another, this is, you know, connect the dots, right? And he, he ran the rat line that was known as the spider. And he arranged for the transfer of, of millions in Nazi loot to go down to Argentina. So she went over to Genoa where she met with uh, Argentinian shipping fleet owner Alberto Dodero. And within a month was ferrying Nazis to South America. So, you know... That was one reason, but the primary purpose of her trip was to be meetings that she had with the Swiss bank. So her world tour uh, was coordinating the network, right, that was helping the Nazis relocate to Argentina. 
but she did it under the auspice of a rainbow tour. Again, inversion, right? They distract. Look over here. Look over here. Well, behind the scenes, they're doing something completely different. It's as though Avita's precise role on organizing the Nazi rat lines remains a bit fuzzy. Her European tour connected the dots of key figures in the escape network, like we just said. She also helped clear the way for more formal arrangements in the Swiss-Argentine Nazi collaboration. Okay, so then in 1945, uh, Passau, Germany, about $10 million worth of war materials went missing. They ended up being sold on the black markets, right, by, by the Odessa people and Germans, you know. And, and so they're all on the black market, but they're supposedly they're helped by the, they're given, just left behind by the allies. And this is where it kind of, I feel like it's a little stretch, but hey, it could be possible. It says the bulk of this material was being shipped to Palestine to use both by Jews trying to create the state of Israel and by Arabs who violently opposed such an effort. What would we see here? They would be supplying both sides of the war. And we've seen that time and time again. So that wouldn't be out of the question. So what it says is they bought and sold surplus American arms to Arab buyers seeking to strengthen the military capabilities of Egypt and other Middle Eastern Arab nations. Palestine, it was supposed to be partitioned into the Jewish homeland, and they intended to destroy it at birth. Right? They, they, they wanted no part of Israel being in there. It's their land, according to them. But by now, the Jewish buyers funded by the Americans and elsewhere got in. And they were barred from purchasing guns and American surplus P-51 Mustang fighter planes by President Truman. And their only recourse for survival was to trade on the black market, which was rapidly coming under control, Mars says, of Odessa agents, which is interesting who supposedly were getting it from the Allies. So, it, you know, it a little bit like Iran-Contra, Iran it sounds like here. However, the Jewish agency's buyers might have purchased from the devil himself if it meant survival of the small, defenseless nation just to come into being on May 14, 1947. So they, what they're saying is they, they would do anything to make this happen. They would make a deal with the devil himself. In 1917, Second Baron Rothschild, Mr. Lionel Walter Rothschild, received a letter from British Foreign Secretary Arthur Belfour, requiring, uh, re sorry, replying to his query regarding Balfour's position on Palestine. So Balfour, and we, we went over the Balfour Agreement uh, in previous episode, but he wanted to set up a homeland for Jews there in Palestine. The letter became known as the Balfour Declaration. So in 1922, the League of Nations approved the Balfour Mandate in Palestine, which, in essence, paved the way for the creation of Israel. So Lord Rothschild, who was a big-time Zionist, right? And that's what we're starting to see, the Zionists. That's who's, you know, kind of pushing the world right now. And that's where I kind of disagree with Mars. It's, I, I lean towards the Zionists, the bankers, not necessarily the Fourth Reich. Um, 
So it was Lord Rothschild who served as a member of the British Parliament. Okay, and then you look at the Zionist movement itself. It has both Jews and non-Jews in it. It's not a Jewish thing. It, it had been working towards the creation of Israel since the late 1800s. Another Rothschild, Baron Edmund de Rothschild, who built the first pipeline from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean, founded the Israel General Bank and was called the father of modern Israel. So we're starting to see here, guys, how everything's shaped into place. In 1944, you have Rockefeller. He was selected to serve as Assistant Secretary uh, of State for Latin American Affairs. Now, interesting. Rockefeller's going to be Latin American Secretary of State of Affairs, or Assistant Secretary of State, at a time when who's going to, and this is where they're setting up the rat lines. It's, you're starting to see now how the whole thing played out. His goal was to monopolize Latin America's raw materials and exclude the Europeans. Behind Rockefeller's rhetoric of taking measures in Latin America for national defense stood the naked grab for profits, is what um, was said. Under the cloak of his official position, Rockefeller and his cronies would take over Britain's most valuable Latin American properties. If the British resisted, he would effectively block raw materials and food supplies, you know, and starve them out. They would need that for their battle against Hitler. So he had them. This was the manipulation they would play, guys. You have to see this. This is the bigger picture. This is what these puppet masters do. They're always thinking ahead. Soon, Rockefeller controlled much of South America and is able to bring that influence to the newly created United Nations. But when Rockefeller pushed through UN membership pro-fascist Argentina over the objections of President Truman, he lost his government position. So even though the president did not want Argentina in the UN, Rockefeller was pushing and got them in. So you see, guys, this is kind of the, the shadow government we're talking about. Because otherwise, Rockefeller, you know, would have been ostracized. But no, instead, he just kept going on his way. He just lost his position in, in government, his official position. In 1947, this is, and, and here we go. This is what we, you know, everybody talks about how crazy the Epstein thing is and, and whether it was real or not. It doesn't matter. What does matter is these politicians and actors and high-level people have been blackmailed and have things against them that will be used if they step out of line. And this is a perfect example right here. In 1947, when Zionist leader David Ben-Gurion was desperate for votes uh, to ensure the passage of a UN resolution partitioning Palestine to create the state of Israel, he turned to Nelson Rockefeller. According to several former U.S. intelligence agents, Ben-Gurion blackmailed the hell out of him. Rockefeller skimmed through the dossier and coolly began to bargain. In return for votes of the Latin American bloc, he wanted guarantees that the Jews would keep their mouths shut about the flow of Nazi money and fugitives to South America. There would be no Zionist Nazi hunting unit, no testimony at Nuremberg about the bankers or anyone else, not a single leak to the press about where the Nazis were living in South America 
or which Nazis were working for Alan Dulles. The subject of Nazis was closed, period, forever. The choice was simple, Rockefeller explained. You can have vengeance or you can have a country, but you cannot have both. Boom. So right there, it's obvious. Thousands of Nazis were set up to get out to continue on and bring their wealth with them. And in exchange, Israel was created. Okay, so the deal was made and Rockefeller delivered. On November 29, 1947, the UN General Assembly approved a resolution recommending the partition of Palestine. To this day, Israeli leaders have in turn blackmailed the Western employers of Nazi refugees and war criminals, guaranteeing nearly unconditional support for Israel and its policies. And you start to see why these corporations are so pushed in one direction, right? They all have the same message. It's because they're all controlled by the same people. And the ones that get out of line are dealt with. The number of Germans who went to South America, both along these routes and by less organized means, after Martin Bormann had declared his flight capital program in August 1944, totaled 60,000, including scientists and administrators at all levels, as well as former SS soldiers commanded by General Mueller. Right? So there you go. 60,000 to South America alone. Then you have Colonia Dignidad, which is Dignity uh, Colony. Today is Villa Bavaria, which is interesting. It was founded in 1961 by Paul Schaefer, not the one from David Letterman, former member of the Nazi Luftwaffe. And he was, uh, it was made up of German immigrants who had been living there since the early 1950s. The large compound boasted its own power plant, two runways, and a restaurant, all surrounded by barbed wire, searchlights, and guard towers. In 1986, an inspection by Amnesty International discovered underground cells where prisoners suffered remote-controlled torture by means of electronic sound systems and electric shock. It was a torture and execution center during the regime of Augusto Pinochet, who was placed into power in Chile by Henry Kissinger in 1973 to protect Rockefeller interests there, said Peter Lavenda. An estimated 3,000 people died and 30,000 were tortured during the violent overthrow of Chile's democracy by Pinochet. That's crazy, right? And Henry Kissinger, another one of these globalists, with the Rockefellers, with the Dulles, okay? And here's another interesting Nazi crazy story, the Galen Organization, okay? It was a spy network created by General Major Reinhard Galen. The Nazi network was to become America's eyes and ears in the early days of the Cold War. In an attempt to avoid conflicts with the uh, Abwehr, I know I'm mispronouncing that one. Uh, Germany's counterintelligence service, Galen created his own network of spies and informers. 
the Galen operation became known as the Galen Organization, a spy network that was continued by U.S. authorities long after the war. In 1945, realizing the war was lost for the Germans, Galen offered his spy network in Russia to the British, but received no answer. Galen and his organization stashed their... Uh, all their intelligence files in more than 50 steel uh, sealed steel containers and buried them as they retreated. Uh, Galen said, my later discussions with General Sieber and Oberussel ended with a gentleman's agreement, which for a variety of reasons we never set down in black and white. And here's the terms of the quote-unquote gentleman's agreement. A clandestine German intelligence organization was to be, to, uh, to be created. This organization would joint, work jointly with the Americans, but would not subordinate to him. Right? They're not going to report to them. The organization would operate exclusively under German leadership with only assign, assignments coming from America. The organization would be funded by the Americans, but not from occupation costs. The organization would remain in American hands until a sovereign German government was created and agreed to take responsibility for the group. Should the organization at any time find German and American interests in conflict, it would consider the interests of Germany first, which must have drove the Americans nuts. You know how egomaniacal the Americans are. Oh, that must have killed them. Galen met with Walter Bedell Smith, General Eisenhower's chief of staff, who went on to direct the CIA from 1950 to 1953 and also succeeded none other than Avril Harriman as the U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union. So under the proposal, Galen would operate independently as an equal, offering the Americans only information they required and requested, and he decided to share, but never any way conflicting with the interests of the fatherland. It said... Galen had grown tight with Dulles and his organization and become, in effect, the CIA department's, uh, CIA's Department of Russia and East European Affairs. Soon after the formation of NATO in 1949, the Galen Organization became the official NATO intelligence organization. It has been made public in recent years that the Galen Organization received an aggregate of $200 million in CIA funds from Alan Dulles. There you go. $200 million. And that's in the, the 50s and 60s. It's a lot of money. It's clear that Nazi Germany's most brilliant minds continued their work outside of Europe after the war, most notably in the United States. Right? Right here. Which leads us to Project Paperclip, which we went over for four hours based on Annie Jacobson's great book. And some of this is is little redundant, but a lot of it has a little twist to it. So we'll go through it. Obviously, it began as Operation Overcast. It was operate, uh, authorized by the Joint Chiefs of Staff to exploit the knowledge of Nazi scientists. By 1955, nearly a thousand German scientists, you know, were brought to the U.S. We know all this. So it was the biggest operation, obviously, bringing Nazis over. But they did most of it in secret, as we talked about. They didn't. Most of them didn't have passports. They were here on temporary working visas. They were not 
citizens. They were not. They were, and then many of them got citizenship. It's just. It's really crazy. The way they brought them in, they would bring them in and isolate them, and you know, send them off to different facilities and have them work there and keep to themselves and wild. So in 1952, Dwight Eisenhower was persuaded to name John Foster Dulles Secretary of State and Ellen Dulles Director of the CIA. Well, that just works out perfect for them. And then Dulles used according to Mars, SS Brigadier General Walter Schellenberg to communicate with Heinrich Himmler. In 1947, when the OSS was rolled into the newly created CIA, Dulles's translator was an Army intelligence officer by the name of Henry Kissinger. Kissinger, if you uh, guys have listened to Ryan from Dangerous World Talk, he says he's one of the, you know, most evil fucks on the planet and Henry Kissinger is one of those and how he's still alive is beyond me this guy's never gonna go he's almost a hundred because he was secretary of state under Richard Nixon and he was a lifelong friend of Alan Dulles after assuming dictate uh, the directorship of the newly created CIA Alan Dulles um, he was an attorney for Schroeder Bank we talked about that earlier he brokered deals allowing Hitler's rise to power assume control over Project Paperclip and increase the flow of national socialism into the or national socialists into the United States. After the former Nazi spy master, uh, General Reinhard Galen and his wonderful organization, he met with the CIA director Dulles and offered to turn over his spy network to the CIA in order for non-persecution of their Nazi past. The scientist dossiers uh, were rewritten to eliminate any incriminating evidence of the work of the Nazis. So for f- over 40 years, Paperclip's dark secrets lay hidden in cover-ups, lies, and deceit. So, it's just one of those real interesting stories. And if you haven't listened to the Project Paperclip episodes, go listen to them or go read Andy Jacobson's book. I highly recommend that great read on on paperclip and all that fun stuff and we'll get into right now the joint intelligence objectives agency right the jioa their officers began bringing nazis over uh from argentina okay and most of those were from the boardman organization anyone regardless of your past as we said could be brought in as long as it was for the best national interest, which is crazy. So on, uh, now we're going to get to, I'm done with that. We're not going to go any more into paperclip. If you want more paperclip, go to the other four hours. I want to move on to the space race because this is where it gets interesting. On October 4th, 1957, the Russians launched Sputnik 1 into orbit around the Earth and the space race was on. The Nazi scientists were in demand more than ever. Specialists were brought under Project 63 and national interest and gained position at many universities and defense contractors, including Duke University, RCA, Bell Labs, Douglas Aircraft, and Martin Marietta. So then you have Lieutenant Colonel William Henry Whelan, who was the uh, deputy director of JIOA in 1957, and he was the highest-ranking American ever recruited as a mole 
by the Soviet intelligence service. So this is the other side of the, the equation, guys. There's just information flowing back and forth. There's spies on both sides. You know, people playing both sides of the fence. Everybody's looking out for number one for the most part. So Whalen admitted to providing the communists with our utmost secrets concerning the U.S. nuclear weaponry and strategies. His connection with Paperclip was not revealed. Incidents of information being passed out of Paperclip were presented to authorities, yet nothing was done. So they knew Nazis were just throwing information around that they were of things they were doing over here, projects they were working on. Nazis maintained illegal mail drops in El Paso where they received money from foreign and unknown sources with coded messages from South America. One GE, General Electric manager, working with paperclip specialists, told the FBI that the Army's lack security at White Sands Proving Grounds bordered on criminal neglect, especially since 350 of the Germans' former co-workers were serving the Russians. So he's telling these guys, listen, these guys are working both sides. Nothing's done. So, the space race. What if the space race was never really a true competition between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, but instead it was a combined space program run by the Nazi scientists and controlled by high-level globalists? That's an interesting take on it. As the Allies closed in on Nazi Germany in the spring of 1945, top American commanders were given orders to leave all the rockets and their plans at the Nazi facility at Nordhausen for the Russians. According to uh, one American officer, we gave the Russians the key to Sputnik. For 10 weeks, the American army had its hands on the rocket plant that gave the Russians their head start in the missile race. The Germans dominated the rocket program to such an extent that they held the chief and deputy slots of every major division and laboratory. In their positions at Marshall and Kennedy Space Center in Cape Canaveral were similar to those that were being held during the war. Then you get into our favorite Nazi himself, Werner von Braun, became the first director at the Marshall Space Center. Okay, uh, And then you have Arthur Rudolph shows up again. He was named project director of the Saturn V rocket program. Uh, and then you had the uh, V2 flight test director, Kurt DeBus, right? He was uh, the first director at the Kennedy Space Center. And files from behind the Iron Curtain have revealed many of the scientists in Paperclip, as well as some of the Manhattan Project, were indeed spying for the Soviet Union. The flow of information between the scientists in the Soviet Union and the United States has led some researchers to suspect that a covert space program, a third program, was in effect. The American space program and its odd 30-year-long holding pattern and, tap and inconsistencies, lies, have long suspected that there were indeed two space programs inside the U.S. government, the public NASA one and the quasi-independent one based deep within covert and black projects. And that would kind of make sense because NASA's like the clown that's out in front that just dances before the circus, you know, or, you know, in the bull ring. They bring it out to distract the bull. 
And that's kind of what NASA is. They throw a lot of shit out there, a lot of garbage information, a lot of fake pictures, a lot of CGI. And maybe there's a covert organization. That wouldn't surprise me. Black projects. Not outside the realm of possibility. So at the start, the Russians proved more capable of attaining spaceflight than the Americans. The Soviet Russians were first to launch a satellite, Sputnik, into the Earth's orbit in 1957. They were the first to orbit a man They were uh, and return him safely in 1961. They were the first to place a live animal, a dog named Laika, in 1957, and put the first woman into orbit in 1963. In addition to land the first unmanned vehicles on the moon i find that debatable in 1970 and the uh, to conduct extravehicular walk uh, spacewalk by cosmonauts and to place nuclear warheads on intercontinental ballistic missiles okay some of those first i would give to them but others i think are cockamamie it's just garbage We didn't go to the moon, guys. The Nazi scientists, some of these said, uh, some of these would stop at nothing, even resorting to duping their colleagues and superiors in order to ensure the continuance of their research. The Soviet experts and the Germans worked side by side in the same factory, but in separate areas. Information was passed between these teams without the Germans ever meeting their Soviet counterparts. Some serious researchers have opined that the space programs of both USSR and the USA were actually the same program, one far ahead of the current joint Russian-American space efforts, such as the International Space Station. The overall project was conceived and designed as a collaboration between two superpowers. The Cold War was a convenient cover under which aspects of this program could be implemented and hidden. All these machinations were orchestrated at the very highest of level, with only a select and hidden few ever knowing the overall objectives of the project. Okay? It's... It's not out of the realm of possibility. These... We look at history over and over again, the Cold War, right? That's a funny one. The Cold War. Another boogeyman out there. Right? That's what they have to throw at you. Space. Right? These things you'll never touch or see. But they put them in your head and make you fear them like nothing. So, Mars claims it is well known that Patton's Third Army had reached the outskirts of Berlin before being ordered back 100 miles to wait for the arrival of the Russians, who were required to fight desperately for every block of the city. Such a withdrawal is clear evidence of the deals being made at the highest levels. This could have been facilitated by the interconnected business and banking interests that we've already talked about. But who knows? Western bankers and financiers who funded Hitler's National Socialism also supported communism in Russia. We talked about that until we were blue in the face last time. And we're going to keep seeing it over. It's the same bankers, these same money people. 
There was scarcely a branch of the American government, including the war, navy, and justice departments, that did not have Soviet moles in high places feeding Moscow information. While Bill Donovan's Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, had so many informers in its rank, it was almost an arm of the NKVD, which is the Russian counterpart. Donovan's personal assistant, Duncan Chaplin Lee, was a spy. Guys, the idea, I mean, yeah. I I put a lot of credence into this because I don't think there was this giant hatred between the U.S. and the Soviets. I don't think, you know, the nuclear clock was a real thing. It was all just fear porn. National Security Act of 1947. Let's take a look at that. President Truman signed the National Security Act in 1947, which created the National Security Council and the Air Force as a separate branch of service, united the military branches under the Department of Defense, and created America's first peacetime civilian intelligence organization, the CIA. So Harry, got some explaining to do, my friend. Most Americans have no idea who exactly comprises the powerful NSC. The council principals are the president, vice president, and secretaries of state and defense, positions predominantly held throughout the later 20th century by members of globalist societies, the Council of Foreign Relations, or the Trilateral Commission. NSC has created the 5412 Committee, also known uh, as the Special Group, which has changed the name several times to avoid public exposure. In 1964, it was known as the 303 Committee, and in 1970, it was renamed to the 40 Committee. I mean, this is what they do, right? They did with shell companies, too. Changing names, changing shell companies. It's always to throw you off the track. In 1964, it was... uh, No, sorry. Um, Within the organization which included people like Nelson Rockefeller, Robert McNamara, McGeorge Bundy, Gordon Gray, and Alan Dulles, was a subcommittee with science and technology. And this is where you start to see the connection between the corporate and the financial world and the government-held technological secrets that may be found. Lyndon Johnson in 1958 stated, Control of space means control of the world. Now, why do you have to control the world? This is what these sick bastards, it's all they think about. How do we control the world? Like pinky in the brain. Right? I mean, this is some crazy diabolical shit. Like, I don't know how many of you guys watch Phineas and Ferb, but man, I love me some doofenshmirtz. The guy always messes it up, but he's got all these grand plans. And that's what this sounds like. Control of space means control of the world. From space, the masters of infinity would have the power to control the Earth's weather, to cause drought and flood. Why? Why? To change tides and raise the levels of the sea, to divert the Gulf Stream and change the climate to frigid. There is something more powerful than the ultimate weapon. That is ultimate position. The position of total control over the Earth that lies somewhere in outer space. And if there is an ultimate position, then our national goal and the goal of all free men must be to win and hold that position. That's some insanity right there. 
that just tells you right there what the plan is. Why, like, if I'm if I'm able to control the world, I am not. It's not even a consideration of mine to cause drought or floods, famines, divert the Gulf Stream, you know, to change the climate. Now, what he is telling you, though, this is what they want to be able to do. This is how these people operate. They want to be able to control the world. They want control of Earth. But they'll never get it because it's out of their hands. But they want to raise sea levels. They want all this stuff to happen. And they're doing everything in their power to do it right now. They spray the skies on a regular basis. They poison the water. They pollute the land. They blow up old architecture. Replace it with new. I mean, it's they do the same thing over and they've been doing it for hundreds and if not thousands of years. Okay, so let's go on to one more. Nicholas Rockefeller, a participant in the World Economic Forum, another one of our favorite groups. He's also a member of the CFR and the International Institute for Strategic Studies. It's funny how many of these guys are in so many of the same groups. It's a big club and you're not in it. Colin was right. He may have revealed the overall globalist agenda when he said, the end goal is to get everybody chipped, to control the whole society, to have the bankers and the elite people control the world. There you go, guys. I don't know how to say it any other way than that right there. That's it. They want to be able to control you, control the whole society, to control the money, and control the world. Now, if you think they're going to do all that and you're going to have the nice lifestyle that you have now, you're dreaming. You got a rude awakening coming because they want to slowly sap your wealth, your buying power. Look at we're in a recession right now. As much as this, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it in Washington that's going on right now, wants to deny it, two quarters in a row with a decrease is a recession. Inflation's at nearly all-time highs. I mean, what do you want? And they're just taking away your power, your ability to buy a home. They don't want you to be able to have that. They want you to rent. Your ability to grow food. They don't want you to do that. They want you to eat their processed, soylent, green bullshit. No, guys. This is why you have to understand the history of this. Because they've told us over and over again what their plan is. But as Americans, we were so fat, happy on our consumer lifestyles. We didn't give a shit what they were doing. Ah, they're going to take a few more percent taxes. Okay. We just let it happen, guys. And now we're in the position that we're in. Because consumerism has has eaten us. We, we, we don't care as long as we are comfortable. And guess what? In the long run, you're going to be uncomfortable if it keeps going like this. 
So at some point, you got to wake up and see what they're doing, know what their plan is, and be ready to push back when the right time comes. Now, do I know when that is? No. Do I know what pushback means? Not really. There's many options. But people have to understand the history and not be caught off guard and surprised to the point where they just, you know, they turn into the panic and just disappear. They're like fainting goats. You know, they're just standing there and all of a sudden you hit them with this, that, that something big is happening, even though we've known it for hundreds of years. They just pass out and they're done. Gone. See ya. And that's a good transition to some Nazi mind control, which we know was a big thing with them. World War II was largely the result of infighting between the secret occult societies composed of wealthy businessmen on both sides of the Atlantic, according to Mars. Eventually, the tensions between the groups provoked open warfare that consumed the entire world. Hitler said anyone who interprets National Socialism merely as a political movement knows nothing about it. It is more than religion. It is the determination to create a new man. Well, I mean, from that standpoint, you could say that that's what our our guys today are trying to do by different medical procedures and different chemicals they're putting into our food and our water and our air. They want to combine man and machine. Right? We see that Elon Musk and his Neuralink putting different things into medical procedures that gets into your bloodstream. They're finding plastics in our blood now, right? It's not good, guys. Oh, so we'll look at Dietrich Eichhardt, the man Hitler called the spiritual founder of not National Socialism. Sounds like a real good dude. Uh, using the Tula Society as a cover organization, the more sophisticated versions of the Tula only graduate uh, depend, developed in the hands of Dietrich Eckhart and Karl Haushofer, and they were later refined and extended under the direction of Heinrich Himmler, who terrorized a large section of the German academic world into lending a professional hand at perpetrating the myth of the German racial superiority. It is surmised that it was uh, perhaps through such occult practices that psychic contact was made with non-human intelligences, thus providing the Nazis with the concepts that led to their futuristic technologies. Mars suspects that any such knowledge of non-human technology may have instead come through Nazi occultists using psychic means similar to remote viewing a psychic ability studied, taught, and used operationally by the U.S. Army, the CIA, and the National Security Agency beginning in the early 1970s. You write remote viewing is where that you sit in a chair and they try and get you to view things from other places. Um, remote viewing, known as parapsychological, known in parapsychological terms as clairvoyance, is the ability to discern persons, places, and things at a distance by means other than the normal five senses. Okay, it is beyond question that the study of the human mind began in Germany. For the most part, they had the you know most extensive program. The German military was particularly impressed with the therapy, quote unquote, 
of Fritz Kaufmann because it referred to war neurosis or otherwise known as shell shock. Okay. The Kaufmann therapy consisted of applied electrical shocks, actually more of a disciplinary measure than a true medical therapy. So what he would do is he would shock these troops and actually some of them would be okay and turn around and go right back in the war. One of the other things the Nazis had was the Society for Racial Hygiene, which only served to further the ambitions of the profession. Since no one has yet found a significant and general cure for insanity, psychiatrists turned to the dubious concept of prevention. This came to be known as mental hygiene, a bland term for the prevention of mental illness, whatever form it might take. The Nazi Sterilization Act, um, which happened, I think it was July, it was, it was somewhere in 19, 19, I don't know why I said July, in 1933, um, right after Hitler came to power. I, that was one of the first things he did, was the National Sterilization Act. Nazis' interest in science and psychological warfare was you know, parallel, paralleled by their concern with eugenics, the scientific study of selective breeding to improve the human population. Race and genetics were always a top concern by, to ranking Nazis. We find the same concern exhibited by America's ruling families today. Right? Eugenics. Good old Gil Bates. They want us... Oh, man. Okay, so by the time of his death in 1937, John D. Rockefeller and his only son, John, Rockefeller, John D. Rockefeller Jr., um, not only built up the oil empire, but they had established um, institutions like, you know, higher education institutions like the University of Chicago, which they started in 1889, right around the World's Fair. The Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research, which they started in 1901, which is now known as Rockefeller University in New York City. The General Education Board, which they started in 1903, and the wonderful Rockefeller Foundation of 1913. And then the most interesting one I found was the Lincoln School, uh, which is in New York City in 1917. These uh, Rockefeller-funded institutions ensured their early entry into the fields of medicine, pharmaceuticals, and education. Now, here's another thing. It was said that Lincoln was a Rockefeller. One of the rumors out there or conspiracy theories or whatever. And I find it interesting because a lot of Rockefeller stuff is tied to Lincoln. It's tied to Abraham, which may give it some credence. I don't know, just a random observation I had after looking at this stuff a little deeper because you start you see it repeatedly. The Rock Rockefellers were also interested in, you guessed it, eugenics. Okay, so they applied it to the genetic selection to maintain and improve um, ideal human characteristics, which included birth and population control. So in 1910, the Eugenics Record Office was established and endowed grants by Mrs. Edward Harriman and John D. Rockefeller. You know, it would only be fitting that the elites would help this, right? It seems the wealthy elite of America were as concerned with bloodlines as the Nazis. And this is something you see of the elites. All they care about is the bloodline. There's something to that. There's much more to that than a lot of people give credence to. 
So we have uh, Dr. Emil Kreplin, a professor at the University of Munich, was able to fund the German Research Institute for Psychiatry. Okay, but he also was a pioneer of psychiatric atrocities such as racial hygiene and sterilization, who, except perhaps for Rudin, had no equal in his advocacy for legal foundation for the policies of Nazi extermination. And th- this guy's just dirty. Initially, they went for the most defenseless of the German population. You guessed it, the children. In, on July 14, 1933, only six months after, oh, here it is, uh, only six months after Hitler's name, Chancellor of the Reich, the law for the prevention of genetically diseased children was passed at the same time as the National Sterilization Act. It was estimated that more than 400,000 people were sterilized as life unworthy of life, quote unquote, between 1934 and 1945. So, you know, they're looking at about 40,000 people being sterilized a year for a decade. Radical application of this principle would lead to the sterilization of 20% of the total German population, something on the order of 20 million people, Mars claims. That's a that's a big number, and that would definitely affect the population. In 1941, Hitler ordered the official T4 euthanasia program halted for no recorded reason. The original campaign apparently had accomplished its purpose and was shut down, but that, that, that did not mean that a new euthanasia program wasn't to begin. The extermination of the Jews was an exact replica of T4's earlier euthanasia program. So now I want you to, this next thing we're going to go over, I want you to think about this. Does this sound like anything else that we've been around lately? During the war, as today, both medical doctors and psychiatrists were quite vulnerable to peer pressure as well as the goodwill of the state, which provided the credentials and certificates necessary for their practice. So it seemed natural that mind manipulation through psychiatry and psychology was soon joined by companion therapy, drugs. 20th century doctors increasingly moved away from the tradition of homeopathy, homeopathy, I don't know why I had a problem with that, which involved using minimal doses of drugs as therapy, to allopathy, the straightforward treatment of disease with drugs. What therapy could not accomplish through psychological means might be accomplished through drugs. This tend to increase the use of prescription drugs set the stage for the rise of the giant pharmaceutical corporations of the 20th century and where we are today. 1898 German Bayer Company began mass production of heroin and used that name to market the new remedy. Bayer described the heroin as non-addictive panacea for adult ailments and infant respiratory diseases. Think about that. Giving heroin to infants. By the late 1800s, Bayer also promoted cocaine, which until the 1920s was an ingredient in Coca-Cola. I mean, yeah, it's amazing. These pharma companies, that's, those are the devil. Now, speaking of which, William Big Bill Rockefeller, who sold rock oil, a diuretic medicine that guaranteed quote-unquote, all 
cures of cancer cured unless they are too far gone. This guy was a, a snake oil salesman in all, you know, in all fashions. William Rockefeller's original miracle oil survived until quite re- recently as a concoction called Nujol, consisting principally of petroleum and peddled as a laxative. It was, it was snake oil. That's what he was pushing. He didn't cure any cancer. And it's interesting because you look at these guys, it's almost like the Rockefellers then are playing the role of like Bill Gates now. You know, if you look at these characters, if you're thinking about this like a movie, right? Gates is playing that Rockefeller role right now. Rockefellers are still there. Don't kid yourself. They're behind the scenes still doing their thing. They're still screwing up education, but it's like Gates is the front man for them now. So if somebody has to go down, it won't be the Rockefellers that go down. It's Gates. It's Fauci. It's these front men, these these poster boys they put up there. They could be sacrificial lambs at any time. But you'll never get to the source. And that's the way they have this system set up. In 1909, John D. Rockefeller Sr. extended his reach into the southern states by a $1 million donation to establish the Rockefeller Sanitary Commission, dedicated to eradicating hookworm disease. And uh, one of the interesting things I found when I was looking at the World's Fairs was these sanitary fairs. And I think I'm going to go back and uh, try and dig up some information on those and maybe bring, you know, a little episode here later on on those. Because those sanitary fairs felt a lot like the World's Fairs with what they did. They had a purpose and then they were gone. Like they came in, they were there for a short time and then poof, adios. So, and if you guys want to... um, learn more about those sanitary fairs. I know that Michelle Gibson on her YouTube page has a good, at least one episode that I've watched on them and it's typical Michelle Gibson. It's great. The Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research is now Rockefeller University. Another deep penetration of America's education system was made in 1903 when he created the General Education Board. Okay, so the General Education Board program includes grants for endowment and general budgetary support for colleges and universities, support for special programs, fellowship, and scholarship assistance to state schools at all levels, and development of social and economic resources as a route to improved educational systems. Major colleges and universities across the United States, as well as many small institutions in every state, received aid from the board. The emphasis, however, was on the South and the education of blacks. Now, why would that be? Well, they claimed that he was trying to, you know, indoctrinate the blacks to think like whites, whatever that's supposed to mean. Rockefeller's General Education Board has spent more than $100 million to gain control of the nation's medical schools and turn our physicians to physicians of allopathic school, dedicated to surgery and the heavy use of drugs, said Eustace Mullins. America has become the greatest and most productive nation in the world because we had the healthiest citizens in the world. When the Rockefeller Syndicate began its takeover of our medical profession in 1910, our citizens went into sharp decline. Today, we suffer from a host of debilitating ailments, both mental and physical, nearly all of which can be traced directly to the operations of the chemical and drug monopoly. 
and which pose the great threat to our continued existence as a nation. And and that's spot on because look at the obesity, look at the heart disease. It's never addressed. Instead, we scare, we're, we're, we're worried locked down for two years over a mystery, you know, a boogeyman that was out there. It's, it's ridiculous, guys. Again, it's the inversion. Instead of looking at what the real problems are and dealing with them at the root cause, we're going to give you a prescription which is going to put a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. Now, are all pharmaceuticals bad? No. But again, they're not getting to the root source of the problem. They are help. They are a cover-up. So what do they do? They, they make you dependent on them. And eventually you cannot survive without them. And that's where they have you. And that's where they want you. Because they will suck every dollar out of you until you can't pay anymore. And then good luck. You're on your own. And that's our wonderful medical system here in America. Now, let's take a little look at fluoride. One, it's one of those big conspiracy theories out there, right? Nazi medical science employed in America involves the toxic chemical sodium fluoride. Sodium fluoride, which for many years was used as rat poison. One recent dictionary defined fluoride as poisonous, pale, yellow, gaseous element of the halogen group in 1986. Reagan's administration of uh, the EPA raised a state level of sodium fluoride into the public water supplies from two parts per million gallons to four parts, even though one part per million has shown to impair neurological efficiency. In Los Angeles County alone, more than 40,000 children aged two and under will exceed the safe dose. I mean, that's good for the people, right? And they claim it's for cavities. Cut the shit, guys. It's a, such a lie. 2006 National Academy of Sciences and the National Research Council report identified fluoride as a potent hormone disruptor that may affect normal thyroid function and potential of fluoride to lower IQ. Well, if you look around, you've got men being more effeminate than ever. We've got some of the dumbest people around ever. There could be a correlation here. Fluoridated water is linked to osteosarcoma, an often fatal form of bone cancer in boys. The Harvard study found a five-fold increase in bone cancer among teenage boys who drank fluoridated water from ages 6 to 8 compared to those drinking non-fluoridated water. So Mars's claim is that this was the, to control the population of a given area through mass medication of drinking water supplies. The real reason behind fl- water fluoridation is not to benefit children's teeth. The real purpose behind water fluoridation is to reduce the resistance of the masses to the domination and control and loss of liberty. Repeated doses of infinitesimal amounts of fluorine will, in time, gradually reduce the individual's power to resist domination by slowly poisoning and narcotizing the area of brain tissue and make him submissive to the will of those who wish to govern him. Any person who drinks artificially fluoridated water for a period of one year or more will never again be the same person, mentally or physically. 
1954 study showed 79 of 81 Nobel Prize winners in chemistry, medicine, and physiology declined to endorse water fluoridation. Let me read that to you again. In 1954, okay, 79 of 81 Nobel Prize winners, we're not talking Barack Obama Nobel Prize winners, we're talking in chemistry, medicine, and physiology, that has to do with the body, declined to endorse water fluoridation. So they know it's bad, but they do it anyway. But now, isn't it ironic that Prozac, which is basically 95% fluoride, it's given to kids, right? Hyperactive kids. It requires a prescription from a licensed physician, while the same substance can be placed in our drinking water <laughs> who have no medical training whatsoever, no license to dispense the medication, and no idea to whom they are administrating this corrosive, toxic, and impairing substance. Right? Look at that. That's so unbelievable. Rockefeller agents order fluoride poisoning of our nation's water. Water fluoridation is the most important aspect of the Cold War that is being waged on us chemically from within by the Rockefeller Soviet access. It serves to the blunt intelligence of a people in a manner that no other dope can. Also, it is genocidal in two manners. It causes chemical castration and it causes cancer, thus killing off older folks. This committee, Ewing's study of fluoride, that's Dr. Cameron Ewing, did no research or investigation on the poisonous effects of water fluoridation. They accepted the falsified data pushed by the USPHS, the United States Public Health Service, on the order of boss Oscar Ewing who had been rewarded with $750,000 by fluoride waste producer Aluminum Company. Gee, that sounds exactly like what Pfizer did for the last two years. Right? They just paid them off. Pay off these guys, these doctors. Say that it's safe and effective. When in reality, now what we're starting to see is those same doctors who pushed it as safe and effective are dropping like flies. Sudden adult death syndrome or whatever they're calling it. SADS. Yeah, it is sad. Because these puppets don't have the balls to stand up and tell it how it is. Instead, they're just pushers for the system. That's why I encourage everybody, multiple opinions. Get them. Do your own research. Don't trust someone else. It's on you in the end. Because we have seen over and over that these people don't give a shit about us. When are we going to realize that? Okay? German scientists had proved that fluoridation is a deadly threat to the population. Sweden followed, oh, West German. Sweden followed West Germany in banning fluoridation, and the Netherlands officially banned it in 1973 by the order of their highest court. Okay, so you see, it's just poison. Now, let's go to another, let's go to the mind poison, right? The CIA mind control projects like MKUltra. 
Project Artichoke, Bluebird, MK Delta, right? All these wild, they, and guess what? They were done using Nazi medical science passed along from paperclip doctors, right? And the people that they worked with. MK Ultra was created in 1953 by CIA officer Richard Helms, a good friend of CIA psychiatrist Sidney Gottlieb, who we talked about last. He's a, oh, he's a maniac. Dr. Sidney Gottlieb is a maniac. It was the brainchild of then the CIA director, Alan Dulles. Again, guys, we're going to see these same players over and over. They tested on volunteer inmates and the diminished role of MK Ultra Project as fears of Soviet drug use eased. The CIA officer that authored uh, the report noted, over my stated objections, the MK Ultra files were destroyed by the order of Mr. Richard Helms shortly uh, before his departure from office. So shockingly, there's no records left of the program up to 1973. The CIA, along with military intelligence, launched a program codenamed Bluebird, later changed to Artichoke. The CIA has even admitted uh, that its drug testing on college campus resulted in the drug revolution of the 1960s. If you don't think that was a Tavistock-created, you know, operation, oh man, that, that, the, the whole 60s, that was one giant operation, just like we're in today. While Bill Donovan, a former J.P. Morgan operative and head of the OSS, began searching for a drug that would loosen the tongues of captured spies and enemy soldiers, Donovan called together a group of psychiatrists who tested numerous drugs, including alcohol, barbiturates, and even caffeine. In 1947, the OSS was superseded right, by the CIA, which loved their drug experiments. Okay? These experiments were carried out in collaboration with hundreds of known Nazi scientists. By the mid-1950s, the CIA had managed to secure a monopoly on LSD. Harvard, where Dr. Timothy Leary, along with Richard Alpert, later known as Ramdas, conducted a series of experiments with LSD and psilocybin. When the evidence of their own experience contradicts adult propaganda, <laughs> they like sensible adults, rely on their own experience and tend to distrust in the future a source of information which they had found unreliable in the past. The drug revolution was simply happenstance or part of the fascist global plan to weaken the structure of America's society. Right? It's, it's like the opium wars on China. That's what that, the 60s was. The drug revolution was to start slowly chopping away at America, starting this, you know, Yuri Bezmenov talks about it in in the eighties. He was out on making the rounds, telling everybody, and nobody paid attention. The deputy director of the CIA revealed that over thirty universities and institutions were involved in an extensive testing and experiment uh, experimentation program, which included covert drug tests on unwitting citizens at all social levels, high and low, Native Americans and foreign. The intelligence community of this nation, which requires a shroud of secrecy in order to operate, has a very sacred trust from the American people. It does not. Nobody trusts the CIA. 
1953, and we talked about this one before, Dr. Frank Olson, right? They got to him. Sidney Gottlieb laced his drink with LSD. And then all of a sudden, he jumps out a window of a New York hotel. It's just, it's, it's mind-blowing. 7,000 U.S. soldiers underwent the Edgewood Arsenal tests. 585 men were given LSD. The rest were administered unspecified drugs. In 1949, the direction of Edward Edgeworth's work abruptly changed. LSD caused hallucinations and suicidal tendencies in humans. As a result, Edgewood's scientific director, uh, Dr. L. G- Wilson Green, seized the idea of conducting psychochemical warfare. He then suggested that $50,000 be set aside in the 1950 budget to study psychochemicals. This is it, guys. Yeah, crazy stuff. U.S. laws governing the American zone of Germany forbade the Germans from doing research on chemical warfare, but did not stop the uh, the Army Chemical Corps or the High Commissioner of Germany, John J. McCloy, from hiring chemical warfare, warfare experts as consultants or funding German industries to produce chemical warfare materials for the United States, right? So they can't do it, but we can do it over there. So the MK Ultra program, which used patients in uh, psychiatric hospitals and lots of other unknowing people, they, to develop their different techniques, and that didn't become public knowledge until 1977. They started it in the 50s. Okay. Kathy, uh, Kathleen Ann Sullivan, who claimed to have been part of the MKUltra program. I, was, I am a survivor of MKUltra program. It was run by the CIA and designed to control the subject's mind and will point to where he or she would become an assassin. To achieve this, I was forced to undergo extensive drugging, electroshock, sensory deprivation, hypnosis, partake in pornographic films, act as a prostitute, and much else. I have, I finally have realized I cannot keep hiding that this has left me only a shell of life to live. In going public, I want to end the fear all MKUltra survivors live with. Okay. Yeah, and as we said, Helms in 1973 destroyed all... MK Ultra files before he left. So now let's get into the military industrial complex and all that it has to offer. Okay, so it was obviously penetrated by Nazis and their ideology, the globalist attention to business and politics. You know, they had to stay focused. John McCloy, who we've talked about over and over again, he was the Assistant Secretary of War and close friend of Deutsche Bank Chair. Herman Abs, an attorney for I.G. Farben, who was appointed to America's High Commission in Germany. As such, he pardoned more than 70,000 Nazis accused of war crimes. Right? And that's what you start seeing. They just can't close the deal when it comes to these war crimes. Okay? In March of 1948, 39 of the death sentences were commuted. Right? It, um, General Lucius D. Clay reduced the death sentences from 121 to 6. And in uh, January 1951, 
under general amnesty, John McCloy uh, commuted the, the remaining sentences. So none of them paid for any of their crimes. So we look at this, and U.S. Attorney John Loftus uncovered a secret unit within the State Department called the Office of Policy Coordination, or OPC, which he said was hidden away from the normal government operations and answerable only to the Secretary of Defense, James Forrestal, and the Dulles faction in the State Department. Loftus found that the OPC had recruited Nazi collaborators to fight against communism. In 1948, Alan Dulles authorized Frank Visner to falsify paperwork uh, to maintain the Vatican rat lines for escaping Nazis. Within a year, uh, Visner's Nazis were working the CIA propaganda front, such as Radio Liberty and the Voice of America, according to Mars. Although the OPC agents were in Europe wore U.S. military uniforms, they were paid by the CIA. Okay, so that's what we have to remember here. These are CIA employees. Every U.S. government administration since the CFR, Council of Foreign Relations, inception has been packed with council members. The like-mindedness of CFR members, along with their close ties with the corporate business world, have caused many conspiracy writers to view the CFR as a group with plans to control the world through multinational business mergers, economic treaties, and global government. Okay, so we look, if conspiracy means that these men were aware of their interests, know each other personally, meet together privately and off the record, and try to hammer out a consensus on how to anticipate and react to events and issues, then there is conspiring that goes on in the CFR, not to mention the Committee of Economic Development, the Business Council, the National Security Council, and the CIA. Okay, and that was according to William Doomhoff, a sociologist who works with the government. Many of the council members have a personal financial interest in foreign relations because it's their property and investments that are guarded by the State Department and the military. Okay, JFK, his special advisor, John Kenneth Galbraith, uh, said, those of us who had worked for the Kennedy election were tolerated in the government for that reason uh, and had a say, but foreign policy was still with the Council on Foreign Relations, right? This is what we talk about, that shadow government, guys. Those Tavistock Institute, Bilderberg, Trilateral Commission, Club of Rome, all of these different groups are like little puppet masters. So we get back to John Loftus, allegedly had access to U.S. and NATO docs. He said that Otto Skorzeny, the Nazi commando who you know, we talked about last time, may have found Solomon's treasure. He made his way to Egypt after the war, where he created the Egyptian Gestapo, staffed almost completely of former SS officers. He said this operation encompassed the Nazi-associated Muslim Brotherhood, uh, you know, an offshoot of Al-Qaeda, the Arab Nazis had much in common with the new Nazi doctrines. They hated Jews, they hated democracy, and they hated Western culture. It became the official policy of the Third Reich to secretly develop the Muslim Brotherhood as the Fifth Parliament, an army inside Egypt. 
1979, the CIA drew fanatics from these Saudi Brotherhood members and sent them to Afghanistan to fight the Russians, right? That's the Mujahideen. Um, but here's the interesting part. After the war in Afghanistan, the Saudis didn't want them to come back. And so Mars says they bribed bin Laden and his followers to stay out of Saudi Arabia. You know, the story we're told is that, you know, he he wanted to come back to help defend uh, against Hussein during the Gulf War. But Saudis didn't want any part of it. They wanted the Americans. So why, which I find it, why if they were uh, Muslim Nazis too, right? If they were, I don't understand the whole thing behind not wanting them back in there because these are freedom fighters for your effort. We'll see. During the 1950s, while Dulles headed the CIA and his brother headed uh, was president of Eisenhower's Secretary of State, both were in prime positions, uh, Mars claims, to shape the Nazification of America. Few Americans remember that John Foster Dulles had been pro-Nazi before Hitler invaded Poland. No one thought either to question the fact that while John Foster Dulles was running the State Department, his brother... Allen was running the CIA, which he once described as a State Department dealing with unfriendly governments. So supposedly these guys are doing a lot of shady stuff behind the scenes. So I, you know, I don't know what to think about that because I'm, I'm sure they were. I mean, look, at the Dulles brothers were, were unbelievable. So now let's look at the game of musical banks. Okay, immediately after the war ended, Allied authorities ordered the breakup of the Germany's largest bank, the Deutsche Bank. Initially, it was split up into 10 banks, right? 10 different regional banks. That was in 45. 1953, it was consolidated again into three major banks, right? And then just four years later, in 1957, these three major banks merged and began takeovers, including the London Morgan Grenfell Investment Bank in 1989, the East German Central Bank followed in 1990, the Bankers Trust of New York in 1999, and two large Russian banks in 2006. Okay, by the turn of this century, Deutsche Bank was reunited and had become a world banking leader. Right, so they just, what did they do? They changed names, created shell companies, and then after the dust settles, now Deutsche Bank is one of the biggest names out there. Okay, Mars claims there was also behind-the-scenes power of men in banking and commerce who had been in league with the Nazis and carried sympathy for their cause still. He's saying General Lucius D. Clay... Um, the military governor of the U.S. zone in Germany, was told Brigadier General William H. Draper Jr. had canceled orders to dismantle or destroy Farben facilities, lied about the bomb damage to Farben plants, and deliberately violated General Eisenhower's orders to break up the Farben cartel. So that sounds like a little collaboration right there. Martin also said... Uh, said to have stumbled across the answer as to why the international business community turned against Hitler. The leading banks and industrialists were looking forward to a post-war world composed of intertwining corporate business connections among the nations of the world, a quote-unquote new world order. 
Hitler, on the other hand, was planning to attack the U.S. just as soon as he had effective rocket and long-range bomber delivery systems in place. The globalists did not desire continuous war, nor did they want Hitler to control a world national socialist government. They had their own plans. And that's what I find interesting because, yeah, they don't want continuous war. But what happens? The U.S. has been in a war almost, well, they have been, just not a formal war, every decade since World War II. I mean, look at the hundreds of wars and conflicts we've been in under the guise of, you know, saving a government, all this bullshit. It's just us doing our work in the world. Now, the 750 new companies established under uh, the Borman Flight Capital Program gave themselves absolute control over post-war economic network of viable, prosperous companies that stretched from the Ruhr to the neutrals of Europe and to the countries of South America, a control that continues today and is easily maintained through the bearer bonds or shares issued by these corporations to cloak real ownership, said Paul Manning. Okay, and he worked on CBS radio. Those who know in Washington, in South America, and in the capitals of Europe are locked together in a conspiracy of silence, he says. So we look at General George Catlett Marshall, who had become secretary under President Truman. Marshall convinced him that it was in the best interests of Europe's prosperity that Germany be allowed to rehabilitate its economy. Thus, the Marshall Plan was born and millions of dollars of aid began pouring into war-devastated Europe. Senator Joe McCarthy attacked the Marshall Plan as merely another Rockefeller scheme to bilk American taxpayers. Remember what happened to McCarthy. According to Eustace Mullins, the Marshall Plan had been rushed through Congress by a powerful and vocal group headed by Winthrop Aldrich, the head of Chase Manhattan Bank, and Nelson Rockefeller's brother-in-law, Okay. Nelson Rockefeller and William Clayton, the head of Anderson Clayton Company. The Marshall Plan flowed money through some banking conduits as before the war, such as the 1936 partnership between Henry, uh, J. Henry Schroeder Bank of New York and Rockefeller family members, described by Time Magazine as the economic booster of the Rome-Berlin Access. The late uh, Jim Keith, author of several conspiracy books, wrote, In researching the shape of the totalitarian, uh, totalitarian control during this century, I saw the plans of the Nazis manifestly did not die with the German loss of World War II. The ideology and many of the principal players survived and flourished after the war, and we have been pro- had a profound effect on post-war history and on events taking place today. So a Nazi vision of unified Europe had become a reality. Is this really a Nazi plan? Right? I don't know if I see that. I don't think that's part of the Nazi plan. The Nazis wanted their state. That big old state. I don't see the EU as being part of the Nazi plan. But hey, I could be wrong. According to John Loftus and Mark Ahrens, when Truman was re-elected in 48, Nixon became Dulles' mouthpiece in Congress. 
Both he and Joe McCarthy received volumes of classified information to support the charge that the Truman administration was filled with what they called pinkos. Okay? When McCarthy went too far in his communist investigations, it was Nixon who worked with his next-door neighbor, CIA Director Walter Bettel Smith, to steer investigations away from the intelligence community and the Nazis. Nixon was joined on the CFR in 1961, but resigned in 1965 after his membership became a campaign issue. He got an initial boost to his political career by uh, befriending a Nazi named Nikolai Malaksa. In 1946, Nixon's influence, along with that of Dulles brothers, freed Malaxa's money from Chase National Bank during the war. Malaxa had escaped from Europe with more than $200 million in U.S. dollars. In America, during, uh, uh, following the retrieval of his frozen assets, Malaxa gained another $200 million from Chase Manhattan Bank. Ooh. That's a lot of money right there for uh, good old Mr. Nikolai Malaksa. 400 mil. I don't know. That's a lot of money. All right, let's go. It's time for JFK and the Nazis. Okay? I find this very interesting because, remember Joe Kennedy? He was, a, he was pro-German, anti-Britain. Seems like John was not an apple that fell off the same tree. Because he was on the opposite side of the spectrum, it almost seemed. And maybe that's what got him clipped. Okay, President John F. Kennedy, who warned of the dangers of unnecessary secrecy in secret societies such as Skull and Bones, the Council of Foreign Relations, and the Bilderberg Group. The very word, he said, the very word secrecy is repugnant in free and open society. And we are a people inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Okay, he said that in 1961 in an address to the National American Newspaper Publishers Association. And I will play um, that quote at the end of the episode in the outro. So if you want to hear it, and I've played it on other episodes before in the outro. It's one of my favorites. Um, and it's in one, one of my intros, whether it's, I think it's, the Great Deception intro, I think it's in. It's not in the Master Debaters. Okay, so let's go on. 1960, Richard Nixon was ex- expected to be the next president of the United States. Quote, but America's hopes were crushed when John F. Kennedy managed to win the closest election to that time. By mid-1963, Kennedy was beginning his ex- to exert his autonomous influence over the most powerful and violent groups in U.S. society. He was threatening to disband the CIA, right? He said he was going to shatter into a thousand pieces. And Mars says this was the home base of the Nazis. Well, at least they were Nazi sympathizers, right? He was going to, JFK was going to withdraw U.S. troops from Vietnam. He was going to close the tax breaks of the oil depletion allowance. And he was going to tighten control over the U.S. tax-free foreign assets of multinational corporations. All right? Many had ties to Borman, according to Mars. And he was going to decrease the power of both Wall Street and the Federal Reserve System. Now, if Kennedy was going to do that, that would be amazing. So in June 1963, Kennedy actually ordered the printing and release of $4.2 billion in United States notes. 
the paper money issued through the Treasury Department without paying interest to the Federal Reserve, which is composed of 12 regional banks, all controlled by private banks whose owners are non-American, often. He had now become a problem that had to be dealt with, right? You can't just go usurping the Federal Reserve and, uh, you know, giving them their money. They need their cut, too. And that's one of the reasons why he was clipped. I will not argue with that at all. It is, uh, Mar says, it is fascinating to note the connections between Kennedy's death and the Nazi-connected persons, groups, and firms are many and well-documented. The CIA, which had passed hundreds of millions of dollars to the Nazi Galen organization, is at the top of the list. Oswald's own connections to the CIA are often well-documented. His training at the Japanese base, um, which was a large CIA facility, uh, he, he could speak Russian, right? Uh, let's see. And then we get into um, the Minox spy camera with a serial number proving it was not commercially available in America. Was all Oswald even involved or just a patsy? It's a good question. Because nobody knows. It seems like he was set up. Okay, so now let's look at the Torbit document, or the nomenclature of an assassination cabal. This document first appeared under the pen name of William Torbit, but it was actually written by Texas attorney named David Copeland. Copeland told this author he had received information from friends in both FBI and the Secret Service. The Torbit document claims the Kennedy assassination was orchestrated through a nexus of Nazi-infiltrated anti-communist organization, elements of the military-industrial complex, the CIA, and the FBI. District Attorney Jim Garrison was a direct liaison between Carroll and Robert F. Kennedy. Hoover worked directly with Werner von Braun in connection with NASA security, and it was Lyndon B. Johnson, as vice president, served the chairman of NASA. So Johnson, along with von Braun, Bobby Baker, and Fred Black, worked hard to obtain the $9 billion Apollo contract for North American aviation in 1961. Now think about that, $9 billion they wanted in 1961 for NASA, just for Apollo. Money laundering at its finest for something that never left the Earth's atmosphere. Well, it leaves the Earth's atmosphere and never gets into outer space. Torbett's tale of NASA conspiracy was supported by New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison. Important new evidence has surfaced. Those Texas oil men do not appear to be involved in President Kennedy's murder in the way we first thought. It was the military-industrial complex that put up the money for the assassination. But as far as we can tell, the conspiracy was limited to the aerospace wing. I've got the names of three companies and their employees who were involved in setting up the president's murder. When Garrison attempted to subpoena the testimony of the NASA employees, NASA refused to provide them, citing reasons of national security. Okay. Now, um... This guy, John Barber, did a really good documentary, I recommend, called The Second Assassination of President Kennedy. 
Um, go check that out. It's a good book. And he goes over this stuff. He talks about Jim Garrison. He talks about Clay Shaw. Okay, so in 1967, New Orleans DA Jim Garrison charged Clay Shaw, a former OSS officer and founder of the city's international trademark, with conspiracy to assassinate the president. At the time of his arrest in New Orleans by Garrison, Shaw's personal address book was taken. It revealed the names and contact information of important Europeans, many of them pro-Nazi royalty or Bilderberg members. According to Jack Ruby, the only one who gained by the shooting of the president was Johnson because of his close connections to, NAS, uh, to the Nazi-riddled NASA. Okay, that's interesting to say. I mean, obviously Johnson would go from VP to P, but there were many other people who benefited from JFK being assassinated. Helmut Stryker, who worked for both the, uh, Reinhard Galen and Otto Skorzeny, as well as for the CIA, including time served under the former director, George W. H.W. Bush. He said, one of the worst kept secrets in the CIA is the truth about the president's murder. It wasn't Castro or the Russians. The men who killed Mr. Kennedy were CIA contract agents. John Kennedy's murder was a two-part conspiracy murder. One was the action end with the killers. The other was the deeper part, the acceptance and protection of that murder by the intelligence apparatus that controls the way the world operates. It had to happen. The man was too independent for his own good. Ooh, that's deep right there. It had to happen, he said. It is coincidence, though, that the men closely involved in the Warren Commission investigation of Kennedy's death are John McCloy and Alan Dulles, both men who could, you could say, had some Nazi ties, along with Gerald Ford, who was, the, who was spying on the commission for J. Edgar Hoover. When McCloy served as high commissioner in Germany or as president of the World Bank or member of the so-called Wet Warren Commission, he did so as a servant of the ruling elite. We have to remember that. Who were these guys working for? These commissions are bullshit. These commissions never come out with any viable information. It's all garbage. Okay, when um, his most extensive ties to that elite were various Rockefeller family interests. Okay, board of directors of Morgan included individuals serving on the boards of 31 of the top 100 firms. Citicorp was directly tied to four, top 49, 49 top companies. And Chase Manhattan Bank, Chemical Bank, and MetLife Bank each had 24 other top companies represented on their boards. These and a multitude of overlaps among the top 100 firms provides a dense network of relationships reinforced by frequent ties through private clubs, educational background, marriages, and membership in organizations such as the Council on Foreign Relations and Business Council. Okay, so we're, we see these, they, they, it's an inner web. It's a spider web. The Warren Commission was essentially 
Oh no, here we go. A lone assassin suffering a strain of madness and violence fired at the president from the sixth floor of a book warehouse, striking him twice uh, out of the three shots he fired within six seconds, despite the fact that the target was 265 feet away, moving laterally downhill away from the shooter, and an evergreen tree obscured the line of sight. This is the MO these guys use today, right? Always a lone gunman. But then you hear talk of a second gunman, possibly, right? That's where the mystery lies. So let's go. The Warren Commission was essentially an establishment cover-up. Only an establishment network could reach into the media, the CIA, the FBI, the military, um, like they controlled JFK's autopsy, right? And other areas of the government. They silenced everybody. The global elite was working to lay the groundwork for their new world order, Mars claims. Worldwide socialism had broken into three economic blocks to be played against each other for profit and control. With the assassination of 1963 and the subsequent cover-up, the globalists, who first created communism and then national socialism, had finally gained a new empire, or Fourth Reich, Mars claims. Only this time, it was North America. This is where we have to question Mars's rationale assessment. Is it the Fourth Reich or the New World Order? They are not one and the same. Because, like we said before, the Reich promoted nationalism. NWO is a global order. Supported by the banks. Hitler didn't want the banks. Who runs a lot of these banks? Who runs a lot of the corporations? that run the corporatocracy today. They're Jews, okay? That would not have flown in National Socialism. It's a major argument against it. Now, one could argue, yes, the New World Order is Zionist. Yes, absolutely. I, I, you will get no argument from me that New World Order is Zionist. You know, you have these neocons, that came out of that Bush clan with Cheney and Rumsfeld and all them. And we're going to get into them in the next, in part three. Okay? Rebuilding the Reich American style. And we will do that one next. But in that one, yeah, we're going to talk about uh, our good friends, Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney. We're going to talk about Ronald Reagan, uh, George Bush, William Casey, all of these guys. And what we're going to see, okay, we're going to see their MO. The patterns are always the same. You have a patsy that takes the blame. You have a second gunman that never comes to light. And then you have some sort of ascendance to power. Right? And what happened in the 1980s? As soon as Reagan got in office, there was an assassination temp on him. And who was his VP? Oh, it was Bush. Okay, we're going to look into that because there was some shady stuff that happened while Reagan, after Reagan got shot. Okay, we're going to look at some guns, some drugs, eugenics, all that fun stuff. And we're going to get into religion, the church, okay, how they've destroyed the church, how they've destroyed education. We're going to look at all that and then we're going to look at like psychology, propaganda, those are all elements that are in our society today. Now, 
Does it mean that we are under the Fourth Reich? I don't think so. I really don't. I think this is the the Zionist push. This is that new world order push we're going towards right now. That world economic United Nations bullshit, which everyone should be against. There's nothing wrong with national sovereignty, with having a nationality. Because guys, as we lose our history, we lose our uniqueness. And that's what they want to take away. They want to meld everything. They want a one world religion and they want us all acting and doing the same shit. And they will control it and tell us what we can and cannot do. And that's the problem with this. Okay, but I, I, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Um, this was another one where we look back and we see the same characters. The Rockefellers. The Rothschilds. DuPonts. Harrimans. Banking elites of the time. I find the thing I find most fascinating about this is the possibility of the space race possibly being a collaboration. And I've pondered that idea before, if that could possibly be that, you know, was the Cold War even a thing or was this just a puppet show, a front where behind the scenes, you know, these guys are working together. How could how could we be at Cold War with the Russians, but yet we're up in the International Space Station together coexisting without a problem? That always rubbed me the wrong wrong way, and that's something they brought up in that uh, Apple show for all mankind. That I, I like that point because yeah, how can these guys be up there together? They they don't like each other. If it was as bad as it was, maybe it wasn't. Maybe the Cold War was as much a farce as everything else. Guys, if you like the show, please share, leave a review. Um, Make a donation if you can. We got patreon.com slash the, uh, the Great Deception Podcast. We have a Venmo down in the links below. Guys, merch, t-shirts are great. They fit great. Uh, solid logos on them. No issues with that. The hoodies, I am a big fan of hoodies. I wear hoodies even in the summer. I'll crank the AC up enough so I got to wear a hoodie. Uh, my Great Deception Podcast logo hoodie is so comfortable. Can't wait for the fall when I can wear it more. Other than that, guys, that is all we have for now. Stay strong and question everything. Ladies and gentlemen, the very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweighed the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Even today, there is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. That I do not intend to permit to the extent that it's in my control. And no official of my administration, whether his rank is high or low, civilian or military, 
should interpret my words here tonight as an excuse to censor the news, to stifle dissent, to cover up our mistakes, or to withhold from the press and the public the facts they deserve to know. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no rumor is printed, no secret is revealed. No president should fear public scrutiny of his program, for from that scrutiny comes understanding, and from that understanding comes support or opposition, and both are necessary. I am not asking your newspapers to support an administration, but I am asking your help in the tremendous task of informing and alerting the American people. For I have complete confidence in the response and dedication of our citizens whenever they are fully informed. I not only could not stifle controversy among your readers, I welcome it. This administration intends to be candid about its errors. For as a wise man once said, an error doesn't become a mistake until you refuse to correct it. We intend to accept full responsibility for our errors, and we expect you to point them out when we miss them. Without debate, without criticism, no administration and no country can succeed, and no republic can survive. That is why the Athenian lawmaker Solon decreed a crime for any citizen to shrink from controversy. And that is why our press was protected by the First Amendment, the only business in America specifically protected by the Constitution, not primarily to amuse and entertain, not to emphasize the trivial and the sentimental, not to simply give the public what it wants, but to inform, to arouse, to reflect, to state our dangers and our opportunities, to indicate our crises and our choices, to lead, mold, educate, and sometimes even anger public opinion. This means greater coverage and analysis of international news, for it is no longer far away and foreign, but close at hand and local. It means greater attention to improved understanding of the news, as well as improved transmission. And it means, finally, that government at all levels must meet its obligation to provide you with the fullest possible information outside the narrowest limits of national security. And so it is to the printing press, to the recorder of man's deeds, the keeper of his conscience, the courier of his news, that we look for strength and assistance, confident that with your help, man will be what he was born to be,
free and independent.